Rebecca Gratz's name may be obscure today, but in her own time and after it, she was iconic as a philanthropist, educator, and intellectual. Hello, and welcome to Footnoting History. I'm Lucy, and in this episode, I'm going to be discussing the remarkable life of Rebecca Gratz. Almost 90 years old when she died, she lived from the earliest days of the American Republic to the era of Reconstruction after the Civil War. If I tried to list, let alone discuss, all her accomplishments, this would be a multi-part episode. She was a poet and prolific letter writer, a notable philanthropist, and a passionate pioneer for Jewish education in the U.S. Researching her life has allowed me to spend more time with two of my favorite subfields, women's history and religious history. But I found out about her, curiously, through research in a different subject area, medievalism. If you've been a regular listener for a while, you may remember that I did a couple of episodes about Ivanhoe, Sir Walter Scott's romantic bestseller of 1819. One of the protagonists of that book is Rebecca, whose general awesomeness has made her a fan favorite since the novel's first publication. Scott's Rebecca is thoughtful, well-educated, and culturally hybrid. While confident in her own identity as a Jewish woman, she is also aware of how that identity makes her vulnerable. Clearly, she's a great character. And many readers of Ivanhoe went on the hunt for contemporaries of their own who might have inspired the vivid characters in Scott's novel. Now, some of this is related to perceptions of the Middle Ages, to the 19th century idea that educated Jewish women were more typical of their own time than the era about which Scott wrote. For more on medievalism and Scott's Rebecca, I refer you to the Ivanhoe episodes. What's really interesting to me is how soon the association between Rebecca of York, romantic heroine, and Rebecca Gratz, Philadelphia philanthropist, began to circulate. One story goes that Washington Irving, of Rip Van Winkle fame, spent dinner party raving to Walter Scott about how awesome Rebecca Gratz was, and that Scott, once Ivanhoe was published, sent Irving a note asking how his Rebecca compared with her real-life counterpart. Like Irving's tale of Sleepy Hollow, this is just a legend. But it was a popular one for over a century, and can still be found floating around the internet today. Even more interesting to me is the correspondence between Rachel Mordecai Lazarus, a Jewish-American educator, and Mariah Edgeworth, a notable Anglo-Irish author and letter writer. Their correspondence began when Lazarus wrote to Edgeworth to call her out on anti-Semitic stereotypes in her writing. Edgeworth apologized, wrote a story denouncing anti-Semitism, and a long-distance friendship was born. I mention this not only because I think it's fascinating, but because it sheds light on the Anglophone networks of educated women, which flourished on both sides of the Atlantic and sometimes spanned it, in the early 19th century. The fact that Lazarus wrote to Edgeworth about a link between the two Rebeccas in 1821, just two years after Scott's novel was published, is suggestive both of the popularity of Ivanhoe and the fame of Rebecca Gratz. So what led to Rebecca Gratz being, at age 40, such a popular candidate for the inspiration behind one of the 19th century's most popular heroines? Not only her formidable intelligence and formidable energy, but the fact that these had earned her a widespread reputation in intellectual and social circles that spanned the Atlantic. As a medievalist, I am fond of saying that the Enlightenment took itself way too seriously, 
and made a lot of insulting presumptions about the past. However, in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, Philadelphia was a hotspot of transatlantic enlightenment culture, a set of elite pursuits that linked political, artistic, and social endeavor. We can think of the exchange of letters between Rachel Mordecai Lazarus and Maria Edgeworth as a good illustration of this. Rebecca Grouts was born in Philadelphia in the same year that Cornwallis surrendered to George Washington at Yorktown, ending the Revolutionary War. And during her adolescence, Philadelphia was not only an important hub, but the capital of the new nation, while Washington, D.C. was being built. I mention this not only because of local pride as a Philly native, but because this cosmopolitan context was important both to what Rebecca Gratz did and to how other people learned about her. Philadelphia, like many European cities of the Enlightenment era, offered multiple spaces and societies for people like Rebecca Gratz to make their mark. In clubs and coffee houses, ideas were traded and newspapers exchanged. And particularly in Philadelphia, due to Pennsylvania's history, such spaces of Enlightenment exchange were religiously diverse. Quakers, Catholics, freethinkers, deists, Jews, and Protestants of multiple confessions might be the members of the same philosophical societies. Members of Philadelphia's Jewish community donated to hospitals founded by Benjamin Franklin, and Franklin was among the donors to the building fund for one of Philadelphia's early synagogues. The famous physician, and Anglican, Benjamin Rush, not only counted a number of Jewish doctors among his students, but attended the Jewish wedding of a friend's daughter and wrote admiringly about the ceremony. This is not to suggest, of course, that there was an absence of prejudice against religious minorities, particularly in the politically fraught era of the Revolutionary War and its aftermath, elite and popular anti-Semitism was widespread. It existed alongside and in tension with relationships between Jews and Christians characterized by mutual respect, where business partnerships, intermarriage, and philanthropical cooperation were far from uncommon. But such active intermingling from the perspective of Rebecca Gratz was not without its drawbacks. Her parents, particularly her well-educated and ambitious father, passed on to their children a robust education that included principles of social justice and civic engagement. According to Jonathan Autry, Rebecca herself set the gold standard for moral humanitarianism celebrated in her lifetime by both Jews and Christians. And throughout her life, Rebecca was both devout and observant. While many of her peers in Enlightenment society held their religious faith, if any, lightly, she did not. And she worried that for the numerically small Jewish population of Philadelphia, participation in early America's cosmopolitan social circles would mean assimilation and a loss of their own distinctive culture. This was far from an abstract anxiety. Thomas Jefferson, for instance, inaugurated as president in the year she turned 20, believed that Jews needed to renounce their religion in order to be full and trustworthy members of the American Republic. So the question of what Jewish American identity should and could mean was an active and fraught one. It was in this environment that Rebecca Gratz came of age. She was the seventh of Michael and Miriam Gratz's 12 children. And yes, this was an unusually large family for the 18th century as today. Michael and his brother Barnard had immigrated to Philadelphia from Germany and would be active in the leadership of the city's Sephardic congregation throughout their lives, influencing the way Rebecca lived out her own faith. When Rebecca was nine, her mother wrote in a letter that Becky is the same kind body as ever. 
In this and in the intimacy that Gratz always enjoyed with her siblings, we have evidence for the warmth of her family upbringing. For her education, curiously, we have more scanty evidence. We know that one of her older brothers and one of her older sisters, Hyman and Rochea, attended what is now Franklin and Marshall College. Rochea was the first woman educated there. Diane Ashton, who did the archival research necessary to write Rebecca's biography, has argued that Rebecca was almost certainly educated at the Young Ladies Academy. Now, that might sound like some kind of finishing school, but it was actually the first chartered higher ed institution for women in the U.S. It was founded by a Harvard graduate, sponsored by Benjamin Rush, and the minister of Rebecca's synagogue, Jacob Cohen, was one of its trustees. Rebecca's literary skill and ambition, as well as her familiarity with philosophical and political ideas, all argue in favor of her parents having decided to give her this formal education at a school where students from Canada to the Caribbean were enrolled. While we don't know the precise dates of her formal education, we do know that Rebecca was putting it to use throughout her adolescence as she wrote poetry and philosophy on a much higher level than I was doing the same thing as a teenager, I might add. And this formative period for her was marked by two dramatically different sorts of experience. She enjoyed participating in Philadelphia's active literary scene, but she also took on significant nursing responsibilities within her family. Both of these things, as we know from her active letter writing, affected the way that Rebecca understood and engaged with the world. A core conviction of hers, emerging very early, was that self-discipline was key to happiness and spiritual fulfillment. This makes her sound arguably more joyless than she was. Her letters are full of enthusiasm and warmth. And while the language of regulating one's emotions might seem foreign or off-putting in a 21st century context, we can recognize in what Rebecca understood by this what we might describe as cultivating good mental health. By the time she was 20, Rebecca was involved for the first time with founding a charitable institution, the Female Association for the Relief of Women and Children in Reduced Circumstances. This focused on families from social backgrounds similar to Rebecca's own, and on making sure that women were rendered less vulnerable to the bad luck or bad habits of their husbands. Rebecca herself, notably, avoided marriage. While her letters with unmarried sisters and friends discuss romance, she cultivated many friendships with men without obvious romantic developments. Her surviving poetry suggests that she had at least one romantic relationship with a man whom she either couldn't or wouldn't marry because he was a Christian. But she wrote to a friend that she preferred to stay single than to marry fearing that married life with an ungenial companion would lead only to misery. She also had the emotionally intense and frequently exhausting experience of taking care of her sisters in their pregnancies and childbirths, which may have strengthened her commitment to join the number of middle and upper class women who chose the comparative liberty of single life. It's worth noting here that Gratz never really seemed to chafe at the gendered expectations of women within either Judaism or literary and charitable circles. And increasingly, in her 30s, her leadership in charitable organizations, as well as her participation in literary societies, made her a leading figure in Philadelphia. She also actively entered into religious discussions and debates with Jewish and Gentile friends via letter writing. In her mid-30s, Rebecca participated in the founding and development of both the Philadelphia Orphan Asylum and the Female Hebrew Benevolent Society. She was an active fundraiser for the former and enjoyed working with children, Philadelphia's orphans, as well as her nieces and nephews. 
The Female Hebrew Benevolent Society, meanwhile, was founded as a way of preserving Jewish faith and culture, as well as helping the poor. In the early 19th century, the Second Great Awakening was in full swing, and Protestant evangelists often targeted the poor. So Rebecca and her colleagues worked to establish a Jewish alternative to Protestant aid societies. This commitment to charitable work that also worked to preserve and foster a minority religious culture and sometimes beleaguered Jewish communities is also visible in Rebecca's later work establishing the Jewish foster home and the Hebrew Sunday School. Both of these endeavors drew on both Jewish traditions and on distinctively American rhetorics of charity, as well as sometimes Protestant institutional models. Rebecca was the primary mover behind the foundation of both institutions. The Jewish foster home gained impetus from the ongoing activities of the Female Hebrew Benevolent Society and was founded in 1855. It was both supervised and administered by women, though a council of men, including Rebecca's brother Hyman, provided legal advice. Rebecca wrote letters in the initial fundraising campaign, signed A Daughter of Israel, and telling donors to remember that good wishes alone don't accomplish anything, and that they would all eventually be judged by God. Honestly, I think this method of religious fundraising could use a comeback. I also find it incredibly impressive that as a woman in her 70s, she had the energy to launch a whole entire institution. Also in the 1850s, she campaigned for the foundation of a Jewish soup house. Yes, Jewish soup house sounds like the name of a restaurant that could be found in Philadelphia today, but as Rebecca envisioned it, it would enable the poor and unhoused to keep kosher, despite economic and social vulnerability. Sadly, no soup house appears to have emerged, but I still love the idea. Even though it's a bit chronologically out of order, I've saved the Hebrew Sunday School for the end of the episode because Gratz herself loved it the most. In 1862, she wrote that the greatest happiness of her life had been in helping to run it alongside her friends and colleagues, and that her last wish was for the institution's prosperity. Throughout the 1830s, Rebecca had campaigned for the opening of a co-educational school that would provide instruction in the Torah, in theology, and in Jewish practice to students from Jewish congregations and neighborhoods around Philadelphia. Not only would this help younger generations resist pressure to convert to Christianity, Rebecca also saw it as preserving Jewish culture in another way. It would provide space and time for young men and women to meet and socialize, thus reducing intermarriage. Rebecca's brother Benjamin had married a Christian woman. Rebecca and her sister-in-law Maria corresponded actively and Maria's repeated questions as to why Rebecca wouldn't convert may have influenced Rebecca's sense that intermarriage could be culturally and spiritually dangerous. Rebecca was the first superintendent of the Hebrew Sunday School, as well as a teacher there, and continued in that role, impressively, until she was 83. By this time, too, she had helped to train up another generation of Jewish women who were active not only in institutions Rebecca had founded, but in providing aid to the Union Army after the outbreak of the Civil War. And while Rebecca habitually downplayed her own importance, the women whom she had mentored made a point of writing her sometimes flowery letters, thanking her for her leadership. In her 80s, Rebecca said that her birthdays were solemn warnings to prepare for another state of being. But despite this, she lived to see the end of the Civil War, which meant she could once again receive letters from nephews and nieces around the country. This also reassured her fears that the American progress she believed in might founder and fail. Her optimism about improvement in the status of American Judaism also received support, 
when Columbia University and the University of Pennsylvania added courses in rabbinic literature taught by Jewish professors. Rebecca Gratz died in 1867, but the institutions she had helped to found continued to flourish, and several are still active today. Particularly in the period of active immigration in the late 19th century, they provided valuable hubs for the cultivation of American Jewish identity. The legend connecting Graz to Sir Walter Scott's Rebecca also circulated actively in this period when narratives about distinctive but also unassailably American immigrant identities were particularly popular. Graz herself doesn't appear to have written about the legend connecting her with Scott's character, but she did read and enjoy Ivanhoe. She wrote to a friend that she felt a little extra pleasure from Rebecca's being a Hebrew maiden and gratitude for what she called Scott's justification of the Jewish character conspicuous in an era of persecution. This justification is also something that she consciously tried to argue for and exemplify in her long life, a life almost defiantly rich, as she was both witness to and influential in many of the transformations of the 19th century. This and all of our Footnoting History episodes are available captioned on our YouTube channel. Thank you for listening and subscribing, and until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.